Yes, it is Canuck Central today, a special edition of Canuck Central. Satyar Shah with my man Israel Fair filling in for Dan Riccio. And we are at the Abbotsford Center getting set for the Abbotsford Canucks taking on the Toronto Marlies tonight, a game that you can hear on Sportsnet 650. We'll talk more about that uh, as the show goes on, and we are going to have a number of special guests, including Ryan Johnson, Stan Smeal, and Trent Call throughout the show. So we look forward to bringing those conversations to you as the show rolls on. You can always get in touch with us on our Dunbar Lumber text inbox, 650-650. And Canucks Central on Sportsnet 650 is presented by your local Grip Auto entire location. Friendly service and expert advice are waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. Now, Izzy, when it comes to the Vancouver Canucks, the playoffs, well, uh, it seems like a much harder road to get there after the loss against the St. Louis Blues. But one of the things that kind of came out today was some good news on the salary cap. It is moving up to $82.5 million from $81.5 million this season. Mm-hmm. And for a Canucks team that's been trying so hard to generate a little bit of cap space, and they were able to move out Hamannick and cleared it by 1.5, now you get another million on top of that. So the Canucks, after the deadline and with the news of the cap going up, are staring at an extra $2.5 million as opposed to what they had before the deadline and the cap increase. Right, and look, we I think we knew that this was going to be uh, piecemeal to, to get this. And there was a, a pretty good understanding months ago that the cap would go up by a million, which I think not just the Canucks, pretty much every team around the league is breathing a sigh of relief yeah. there uh, because it's been a tough year. I mean, look at the, look at the trade deadline. We did see a lot of moves, uh, probably more moves mm-hmm. than anybody expected, uh, maybe not in Vancouver, but across the league. And that kind of all came together at the last minute because teams just didn't have that flexibility. You know, they, mm-hmm. they're pushing their cap space all the way to Monday uh, to to make moves that were going to make those teams better. And so a million dollars, you look at it, and is that a ton? No, but as you said, Sat, the Canucks have already started that process of trying to unearth a little bit more. We heard the the rumblings of some of the, I guess we can call mid-tier players on this roster that mm-hmm. are making somewhere in that two to three million dollar range that were possibly available at the deadline. Uh, those talks will certainly be revisited in the offseason if there's any merit to them. And all of a sudden, there's going to be a little bit more room for this team um, to bring the complementary pieces in, right? Quinn Hughes mm-hmm. has his contract. Thatcher Demko has his contract. Yes, eventually the Elias Patterson contract will, will have to be decided long term. But there is cost certainty there for the next two seasons beyond this one. We know the JT Miller decision. We know the yeah. Brock Besser decision. That's the one that, at least in the short term, really hangs over. But at least this team, uh, with the exception of what happens with JT Miller, and that that's that's a massive organizational decision, regardless of how much cap space is available to the team. You know, they'd have to make that decision regardless. What can they do in the middle of the roster? Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's up front or on the blue line, talk guys like uh, Tanner Pearson. Talk about Tyler Myers. Uh, Maybe even on the higher end, talk about Connor Garland. Is there a market there? Right. Can you use that five million or close to five million a little bit more effectively? It's uh, it does open things up for them, definitely. It does, and they're not at a point yet where they have great flexibility, but having that breathing room, and it's not just a two and a half million that has opened up since the deadline and the cap increase. It's also the fact that move Tyler Mott out, and moving Tyler Mott out means you don't have to earmark any money to keep bring him back next season. And we'll see you know, what happens in the offseason if the Canucks do take a swing at him in free agency or not. But you're kind of looking at 
not only is it two and a half, but also about two million. You don't have to pay Tyler Mott. So when it comes to trying to make your accounting heading into next year, the Canucks are in a position now, Izzy, where you're staring at a 16-man roster. You include Furlan on LTIR, and this includes guys like uh, Luke Shen on the back end and keeping a guy like Kyle Burrow. So mm-hmm. 16 players under contract. With about, depending on how the overages go by the end of the season and how that gets calculated, the Canucks will have anywhere between 16 to $17 million in cap space to sign six players to the roster. And if you say, let's just for a moment assume that Besser signs a contract for $6 million even. Yep. Well, that means you have $11 million for five spots to fill out your roster, which gives you breathing room to fill it out and do some different things. But what it really does is put you one move away from having the world open up to you. And that's kind of the position I think this Canucks squad wants to get at. Because once you say clear some of the money for Besser, just the earmark it, not to say you're necessarily going to sign him, because it's either him or somebody else of similar caliber or monetary value to play that type of premium position for you uh, down the wing. For sure. So if you're staring at an offseason where you might have, after signing Brock Besser, 15 to $16 million in cap space, you have a world of possibilities in a league where cap space is going to be hard to come by. Teams are trying to get off contracts and good players being available. I'm not interested in the free agent market, is he? What I'm interested in is having that extra cap flexibility to take advantage of certain opportunities that do arise potentially this offseason. Right, and uh, these are conversations that we've had in this market for a long time. I think the context around them is a little different these days uh, given the change in management. We had a lot of conversations about could Jim Benning and that management group take advantage of certain teams and certain situations and cap ramifications. And look, we saw a little bit towards the end the Jason Dickinson trade, which yeah. in hindsight is a rough one just because it's been a, Hasn't worked a out. Tough, tough season for yeah. him. But you look back at that one and the process was sound. This group with Jim Rutherford's history is, is well, well known, likes to make moves. And then the the additions to the front office where there's, I think, reason to believe. And as you said, Sad, it's kind of like maybe one move, one and a half moves to really kick things open. Can there be that creativity, that flexibility to open it up? And, yeah, there are big decisions to make on big players, you know, long-term commitments to guys like Besser and Miller, Horvat at some point as well. Mm-hmm. But to get there, this is a very interesting transition period for this group. It, it is super intriguing, especially when we look at how many long-term contracts are really on the books here. It was always going to be a bit of a tough go this upcoming season because of the cap crunch and also the year afterwards with some guys being locked in. But once you kind of get beyond the last year of Pedersen's you know, bridge contract, the only players under contract long-term are Quinn Hughes. Yep. Oliver Ekman-Larsen, that's right. Connor Garland, and Tucker Pullman. That's it. So after, in two years' time, those are the only four players under contract for you. And Demko. And Thatcher Demko, yeah, sorry. Thatcher Demko comes in there at number four. So those five guys. And Demko you feel really good about. Same with Hughes at that number. Absolutely. So not a lot of guys that you worry about long-term, outside of OEL, of course, and potentially Tucker Pullman, how you view that contract. But once you get through next year, and then you bake in the fact that maybe in two years' time, by the, by the year 2025, 2026, when Friedman mentioned we might see a, a significant increase in the cap when revenues bounce back and the league makes good for the money that was lost over the pandemic years, 
it might really coincide well with Pedersen's contract being up that year and then all of a sudden getting a significant boost in the cap. So really what the Canucks have to really be cognizant of here is clear a little bit of cap space, but don't really sign too many guys long term unless a good player falls into your lap. Because if you kind of punt and save some of that cap space for one more year, man, you're going to be in a really advantageous position in one year's time. Because once you start going through just minor increases and in what the Canucks have done here, I believe there will be more flexibility available to them than a lot of us had anticipated. Right. And you, I mean, this was a, a roadmap that was available prior to this season. And maybe the mandate was different. Uh, maybe the, the, the management group at the time felt that the team was closer uh, than they actually were uh, because it would have been a lot nicer for the Canucks you know the Erickson the Roussel the Beagle contracts coming up freeing mm-hmm. up that money now look all Reckman Larson is here there's a little bit of a discount on that deal but he obviously would not get what he's signed for on the open market that doesn't mean that there aren't moves to be made to uh, from a cap perspective take advantage of opportunities and looking at the roster what type of players are you going after? Um, you know, you talk about, you said that. Free agency at this point, you're a little more ambivalent, unless you're talking real premium kind of players that might be out there that would be worth the risk. Like, for instance, let's say, a hypothetical scenario, the Canucks trade JT Miller this offseason, mm-hmm. they'd move somebody else, would it be unreasonable to take a run at Philip Forsberg, potentially, who's I don't younger? Think so. I mean, I know Bix talked a lot about it. I mean, those are the possibilities here for you all of a sudden if you do move somebody else out. Right, and it, it, that's why with this team, and when you, when you put it out there and you talk about the end of the Pedersen Bridge contract, how the, the cap numbers line up with that, how that might line up with the window to contend, it, it seems daunting. It seems like, well, what's this team got to play for then the next couple of years? Based on what we're seeing right now, even just look at the, like the last 20 games of this season, there's so much to learn about mm-hmm. this group, the players that are there, and how they fit. You have the core pieces, as we've talked about almost every day on this station, right? There, there, there are the core pieces that are there. That is the most important part. But you got to find the pieces that work with them. And if you feel like Philip Forsberg could play with Elias Patterson and they would be a dynamic duo, and... Maybe you have questions about what Miller and Pedersen are. Now, we know Miller has the versatility. He can play center. He can drive his own line. But if the team's willing to give up some assets, you know, what if a team's willing to give up a legit D-man prospect for JT Miller, who's coming up on 30, going to have to take a a significant pay increase and long-term commitment to keep him around, that's what you're weighing, right? Philip Forsberg, on paper, looks real nice. With Pedersen, that could be real nice. This is a guy who's you know, already scored 30 goals. Right. He's having an incredible season. That's why the management group has to evaluate each player individually and feel yeah. confident in their evaluations along with, well, what are we building here? And we know the building blocks are here. Who fits and how do you get the best out of them? Well, and they're getting close to a point where from a cap perspective – they're one move away from having real flexibility to do certain things or have all the sort of options that you want to have. And then you might be from a position of, hey, move an invaluable player and get assets back, and you can do different things. But either way, the Canucks from a cap perspective, with the small increase in the trade deadline, it's only $2.5 million, but when you look at the grand scheme of things and not bringing Mott back, it's closer to $4.5 million that you have available to you that you didn't have before as far as how you're earmarking money out. But it ultimately comes down to what is a fit for this team. Because we can sit here and talk about, hey, we see a world where 
it makes sense to keep Miller. There's a world here it makes sense to keep Miller and Besser, move somebody else out. I mean, all these machinations are possible. You can argue for any one of them. One guy that I do just wonder about for the fit, and this isn't because I don't like this player, because if anything, I think we all love this player, and we've grown to like uh, how feisty he is, how, how he comes away with the puck, and how great a start he had to the season, and that is Connor Garland. But when we look at his production ever since Bruce Boudreau took, out, took over, we look at his role on the team, we look at what the coaches said about him, we look at the overall metrics too, it doesn't seem like he's fitting what, what this team is trying to do and is what we're seeing now kind of instructive as to why we heard his name available in the trade market? Because it seems like at the moment, the fit's not right for him on this team. Yeah, it has to be sad. I mean, you're right. He made such a great impression to start. And I think some of that is baked into fans wanting the best from that deal, which at the time was, was rightfully criticized as being a difficult cap decision. Uh, but when Oliver Ekman Larson has the start that he had to the season, when Connor Garland immediately shows that he's the kind of spark plug uh, that I think Canucks fans have been wanting this team to have for a while. And you can you can convince yourself, okay, well, th- this is a player that does a lot, you know, brings a lot to the table. Um, but when you f- do the flip side, okay, is he a full-on playmaker? No. Can he make some plays? Yes. Is he a goal scorer? Not really. Can he score goals? Yes. And it's th- th- that line is, is real fascinating for a player like him. And I think you have to come down on the evaluation of Connor Garland. First and foremost, is he a, a play driver? Is he a line right. driver? As much as everybody likes him, I don't think anybody is going to say, you know what, he can be the best player mm-hmm. on uh, a top six line. Maybe if you have a real deep team right. and he's on, on a third line with you know a really responsible center or something like that, you can convince yourself that the Canucks aren't there. Like they need more difference makers, and so Connor Garland, with the contract that he signed, it's not a it's not a huge contract, but it's still well four point nine so significant. Yeah, yeah. You, you want you want some production from that player. Yeah. Okay, so he's not a play driver. Can he be the complementary piece? Can he be the second guy with? And he's going to be a winger. We know he can't. He's not going to play center. Can he be that guy with JT Miller? Right. Can he be that guy with Elias Pettersson? Can he be that guy with Bo Horvat? We've seen him play with kind of all of those guys throughout the season. Um, there were some times where Pettersson and he played well together yeah. on a line. Uh, we've seen it with Horvat a little bit, certainly earlier in the season. But it's not like he's absolutely jumped and, and given, especially this coaching staff with Bruce Boudreau, no doubt that he has to stick there. So then you go, okay, is he the third player on a line? And those players are obviously really valuable. But there's not that dedication to them in that spot in the lineup, that spot in the roster. If he's there, it doesn't mean he's a bad player. But as you said, Seth, where is the fit? And because there's the cost certainty, would he be of interest to some of the, the teams that we heard rumored, Boston, Los Angeles, uh, that are that, that have a little bit different makeup uh, yeah. with their forward group? Well, the reality is, I mean, teams are interested in Connor Garland. I think for Vancouver, the biggest issue comes down to valuation. If they are going to make that type of a move, they want to get some level of requisite value back in return, considering what they gave up to acquire him and Oliver ekman Larson. And, hey, you may not get that ninth overall pick value back in return, but you also don't want to take far less than what you gave up just a year after that deal was made. And even though it's a different regime, I can understand from a valuation standpoint. But... Ultimately, what, what this also is a lesson for is you got to make sure that when you make these types of moves, the vision of your organization is set and you have a real good idea of, number one, what the identity of your team is and how these guys fit into how you're trying to play. 
And yes, there is something to be said about adjusting your style to your personnel. But when you're building a team out and you're acquiring bigger name players or players that have term on their deals, you kind of have to make sure they can fit to what you're trying to do. And initially, it seemed like Garland really fit in. But ever since the regime took over, I mean, you know, Boudreaux himself hasn't been overly impressed. And mm -hmm. even early on when he was playing well under Boudreaux and Boudreaux was complimentary, he'd say stuff like, well, yeah, he's really good, but he'd be really good if he was 6'2". But right. he's a little guy. You know what I mean? So it was always kind of like a backhand. It was always like, a, yeah, but. And yeah, we but. also heard when he was playing with Pedersen. Yeah. That's not a line that I would put together he, under normal circumstances. And we're getting some stuff out of them. But for him, it was all gravy. Well, and what he said was he's playing with a couple third liners. He referred to Hoaglander and Garland as third liners when, you know, as far as him, that those being his teammates, right? And then, you know, the other night against the St. Louis Blues, he comes out and says he, had a, he like, just rips them. Like, as, yeah. as honest as we've heard Bruce Boudreaux be and rip a player post game and talk about how he wasn't good enough, made mistakes, and he needs to be a lot better yeah. than what he, he was. He hasn't had a ton of opportunities to do that because the team has played well right. under him. Exactly. <laughs> and I think when he came in, uh, the message... Obviously, they played really well once he once he became the coach. But the message was, I need to, we need to turn this the the mood in the room around because it had gotten so doom and gloomy. The results followed, but now we are past the trade deadline. We are very much in evaluation time. And with Bruce Boudreaux, I think he wants to. We we know he wants to stick around here. There's uh there's we look at his career right. Look where he's ended up. Yeah, Washington great young nucleus of players. He goes to Anaheim. They're a little bit older. They're more veteran players there. But he had you know, the horses yeah. and, and the star players. He, and, and what he's always been complimented on is he knows how to use them, and he puts them in positions to succeed. If Connor Garland was really in that category, Bruce Boudreaux would be the coach to, to give him that push. Now, we may disagree. Uh, you and I may sit here and say, you know what, maybe Garland deserves a little bit more of an opportunity. And there could be some give and take, but even if we are sitting here going, you know what, we're we're fans of this of his game. We, we think the Canucks should uh, at least give him a chance to to prove himself playing on a second line. Let's say we're not going to stake our reputations on that, right? For us, it's a little bit more of a conversation than an absolute necessity. Well, and the reality is, he hasn't been bad. I think the. I think what people have to understand when when you hear this conversation, it's more about fit. And about, are you maximizing this player? But right now, he's being outproduced by Tanner Pearson. Right? And, you know, it comes down to how many minutes are you playing this guy? You know, I see Steven and Delta texting in and says, I hope no other GMs listen to your show because they would never touch Connor Garland. <laughs> well, I mean, we're not speaking about him being we a We both like him. We, we both think he's, a, he's a, definitely an above-average NHL player. But he has, what, 17 points in the 38 games Boudreaux's been here for, right? So that you're talking about the production has gone down. He's playing like under 15 minutes a game under Boudreaux. So you're not talking about a guy getting a ton of ice time. He's not playing on the first unit power play. And he's getting paid $5 million, right? It's more about why you're not utilizing this guy. More. I'd love for them to play him more. I'd love for him to get on the power play and see what he can do there. But that seems to be something they're reluctant to do. And Yannick Hansen mentioned that today when he was on the People Show and mm -hmm. talked about how the type of player he is doesn't really suit him for the power play. At least that's Yannick's assessment of things. So maybe that's what, the, what they see. What you have to do more than anything is identify, does this player fit and how does he fit? And if Boudreaux's back here next season, is this player going to succeed here under Boudreaux? Right? And if he doesn't, then your time to move him out would be this offseason before it gets compounded. The last thing you want is being in a position where, where the Canucks were with Keith Ballard, albeit a bit different because, <laughs> you know, had injury problems and all those sort of things. But the reality is... You mean the Canucks don't have Mason Raymond in a second-round <laughs> pick to, and Ballard to put in, a second? in the package? Yeah, maybe they can get a star player, right? <laughs> maybe that gets you Brad Richards. But, I mean, essentially, they're in a spot where 
you don't want to have a guy and try to make him fit when he doesn't fit. You have to make sure that all these guys here and the coach you have are really aligned. Because if they're not, you're going to be in a position in one year where this player's production goes down, plays even less, and then the contract becomes immovable. You can trade Connor Garland. The issue is the Canucks want good value for him. The problem is you're not getting that value, or at least you haven't been getting that type of offer yet. But at some point, you have to make that assessment. Is he going to work here? Because if we don't think he's going to, we can't bring him back next year. Because if we, we don't think it's going to work and we bring him back, you're compounding a situation. That's how a player becomes a liability instead of being an asset for you. I'll point this out, too, with Garland. And this is something that, that you hear a lot. When you, Sat, you mentioned the numbers are, pr- are pretty solid. When you do the rates and he yep. doesn't play a lot. Per 60. Th- that, that all looks good. There is a real gap. Like it, it, It's easy to sit here and say, look, the per 60s are really good. He should play more. You mentioned right. what Yannick Hansen said. Look, uh, he, he's not the type of player that you're going to build a power play around. And, and maybe it's not an, a great fit for him to be on a power play. Could he be a, a luxury piece on a PP2? Right. Sure, depending on, on the other pieces that you have to put on that unit. But there are a lot of players that have come through here. I think of Sven Berchi all the time when you talk about the per 60s where his numbers looked really good per 60, and he was a, a decent power play guy uh, on a team that wasn't particularly good, so he got a lot of opportunities. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of conversation. Look, Sven Berchi, he's a top 90 forward in the league by per 60s. He should be playing so much more, and that was back when he was playing quite a bit with Bo Horvat. Yeah. But there was a reason. You talk to people in the game, you talk to the coaches, and they, go, they, they say exactly what someone like Yannick Hansen would say about Connor Garland. It's not simply the math equation. I'm a metrics guy. I I like to cite and reference those numbers to help me figure out what a player is. But it's not a simple equation of this guy's getting, he's producing at this rate per 60 minutes in 13 or 15 minutes a night. Well, if he he was playing 18 minutes a night, he he would be doing the same. No, he, he probably wouldn't. And the people that run these teams, you may have disagreements. You may think that the, they've, you know, value certain traits and aspects of players more than they should. Uh, that they might not give. You mentioned that the uh, Boudreaux's quote, <laughs> basically, you know, right. comments about Garland. He's not six two. You and I can sit here and say, you know what? That's you're letting an asset go unrewarded. But there is a little. There's always a little bit of truth to the reticence, I think, from someone like Bruce Boudreaux, someone in a coaching staff who understands what it takes to make those minute jumps and, and, right. and what players need to do to earn and keep their, their roles in that spot. Because I do think the, the position where Garland's had his most um, success with has been Elias Pettersson, right? So in theory, that could be a line that works. The thing is, it hasn't really worked with Miller. It hasn't really worked with Bo. And if you're not married to that being a guy you have with Patterson, it really depends on who else you bring into your organization. It also depends on who your coach is next year. And because next year for Boudreaux is not guaranteed, he has an option year next year, I don't think there's a certainty that he's back. Could there be a coach that comes in that you like that says, I love this Connor Garland guy. He's going to fit into what I want to do. Then it's a different conversation. But the point I want to impress more than anything here is you have such a critical offseason coming up, right? And the rest of the season, you really got to figure out who works with who, yeah. what fits. And beyond even the postseason here, like just of these pieces here, how much are we going to bring back? Is Boudreaux our coach? If he is, who fits in on this roster with him and who doesn't? And what is our ultimate vision here? 
Because if you make the wrong assessment, because this is your offseason here. Like, this is going to be the offseason, Izzy, where they make that one big move, that one big decision, or perhaps two big decisions. you got to get those right. you got to make sure that if you're moving guys out, it's the right guys you move out. And if you're keeping guys, you're keeping the right guys. And as far as Garland is concerned, I just have more questions than answers based on everything we've seen under Bruce Boudreau in this new regime with Connor Garland. That's kind of what I wonder about long-term. Do they see him being a fit? And since they don't see him potentially being that fit, that's why we keep hearing his name pop up as somebody who could be expendable. For sure. And you look at uh, Rutherford's history, you look at Boudreaux's history, uh, the, the types of players that have thrived for them on the wing generally don't look like Connor Garland, don't play like Connor Garland. Um, I still sit here and hope that he gets a bigger opportunity over the last few games of this season yeah. to show that he is a, a no-doubt top-six guy for this group because that, that would be hugely valuable if you have that under $5 million committed uh, that's going to be part of the, the group and the culture moving forward. There's a commitment that's been made. Um, if, if you solidify that and you're rewarded on the ice with the production – Everybody comes out happier. That's the best result for, for everybody involved. Mm-hmm. But these are the tough questions that management uh, has to ask themselves right now when it comes to the coach, when it comes certainly to the roster, and uh, what they're, that's what they're looking for the rest of the year. Well, and you're so right about what you mentioned about the overall rates. How do they view it? Because there's two sides of viewing it. There's one side of you going to say, this is so impressive. Give him more ice time. Maybe he'll get more. Or it's, yeah, he's getting those rates because he's playing this type of role, or we're not giving him that extra ice time. And that's going to be really the determination. And I do think, as far as the analytics go, and as time goes on, we find more and more noise as far as the traditional shot metrics go. And they're super valuable as far as guiding you and giving you a, a tool to evaluate things and cross-reference with, you know, and look at it. it I have a lot of time for it. But every high-danger shot is not equal. Mm -hmm. And and every mid-danger shot is not equal. And that all gets assessed together with the same kind of evaluation when we look at some of those numbers, right? And I think that's where how good a finisher is he? How good is his shot, right? Just because he's getting those shots, he's not finishing as many. What does that kind of tell us about his ability to actually finish if he gets there as much, right? Is it just, hey, bad puck luck? Or does he have to be a high-volume shooter to get those 15, 20 goals? You know what I mean? And that's kind of the thing you try to assess, and that's why you try to get some you know, more meaningful numbers to kind of fill that gap. But I find the Garland situation, Izzy, to be super fascinating, and we'll see where this leads, and we'll keep an eye on it, of course, uh, throughout the rest of the season and heading into the offseason as well. As Canucks Central rolls rolls on, Satyar Shah, Israel Fear on the home of your Canucks, Sportsnet 650.